Okay, today, I've shortened the amount of time I have, and if you have your handout, you will notice that last week we spent, we used the entire time to talk about Martin Luther. This week we're going to talk about two reformers, so be ready, everybody buckle up, it's going to be a roller coaster. Um, The two reformers we're going to talk about are both in the lands of Switzerland, the name Ulrich Zwingli and John Calvin. And yes, I've already been chastised this morning that it's not okay to spend half my time on Calvin. We need to spend a lot more time. Maybe we'll do like a six-week study on Calvin. And those of you going to Living Hope can download it. Um, Sorry about that. But um, I think the idea here is just to get a brief overview of their lives, their biography, a little bit on their legacy and their theology. Maybe that'll whet your appetite if you're not as familiar with them um, to do further study on your own. That's a good hope for this, because there is much you can study of these gentlemen, especially Calvin. Um, but let me introduce some, a topic to you real quick before we dive into both these guys' lives. So when we think about the Reformation, there's kind of two aspects of the Reformation. There's one is what we would refer to as the magisterial Reformation. So those are the reformers like Luther and Zwingli and Calvin and John Knox in Scotland that kind of use and are instruments not only of, um, of, of the Lord in building his church, but they kind of use the local authorities, the civil authorities, the magisterium, we would say, to help facilitate the changes they want to see in the church. So these guys are magisterial reformers. That's what historians would refer to them as. There's another aspect that we'll briefly touch on today as we talk about Zwingli. It's called the Radical Reformation. And the group in the Radical Reformation that we primarily think about are the Anabaptists. So the Anabaptists are the people that believe in believer's baptism, so more in line with Calvary. Um, Anabaptists meaning re-baptizers. Um, the idea of rebaptizing is that they were already baptized into either the Catholic Church or some other church, but as they became believers as adults, um, they got rebaptized. Okay, so that's the Anabaptists. And those folks generally did their reforming work outside of the bounds of the local authorities and the magisterium. So those are the radical reformers, the radical reformation. So two different aspects of the reformation. But I wanted to introduce that topic to you because today we're going to talk about two additional magisterial reformers. Um, and both of these guys are in the lands of Switzerland, one in Zurich, that's Zwingli, and one in Geneva, so different sides of the, of the country, um, and that is uh, Calvin. Zwingli is a, an actual um, um, leader the same time, lives a life very similar in time to um, Luther, and then Calvin is kind of the second generation reformer. So these guys are um, the reformers that God used most in Switzerland. There's another guy that's very important as well, Heinrich Bullinger, who we won't get into today, another gentleman too, Martin Bucer, who's important as well. Uh, But these guys established the Reformed Church in Switzerland, and they left a lasting legacy and probably the most successful denomination of the Reformation. But I thought it'd be fitting, because we're talking a lot about Luther and Zwingli and Calvin and the Anabaptists, is to look at the Scriptures first. So if you turn with me to 1 Corinthians 3, so may our focus never be that these guys are doing the work but it is the Lord. So I thought we'd pull up this, this text and 
1 Corinthians 3. This is kind of Paul's accusation of the Corinthians for wanting to follow certain leaders. Um, and those of you who are around, remember Dan preached on this over several messages a few years back. But if you look at 1 Corinthians 3, let's start in verse 5. So he's already identified who these other people could be, these uh, Corinthians are following. He says, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the, as the Lord assigned to each. Paul says, I planted Apollos water, but God gave the growth, so that neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. So think about that scripture as we consider um, the reality of you've got Luther and Zwingli who are contemporaries um, in the Reformation movement. And then the next generation is Calvin. So it's almost like these guys God's using to plant. And then Calvin's watering and providing a greater theological um, underpinning for the Reformation in the next generation. And then from generations to come, more growth will come in the Protestant movement. So I think it's important that we realize it is God at work using his means, using men to accomplish the growth of his church and the building of his church. Let's pray, and then we'll dig into these guys' lives. Lord, we uh, come before you, Lord, and uh, Lord, even as we consider the fact that today Calvary is launching Living Hope Bible Church, sending them off, Lord, we glory in the fact that you are building your church, and Lord, that you... um, We count it a privilege that we get to be involved in the process of building your church. Lord, I pray that you would help us, Lord, to have a greater understanding of who you are and what you've done and what you continue to do in history um, in in the world today. Lord, may we uh, have a greater understanding of your sovereignty, of your providence, because of what we learned today. May, Lord, this time be exalting to you and bring you glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay. So, I don't know much about Switzerland, okay? I just want to be completely frank with you. But I thought maybe we'd talk a little bit about what Switzerland is like during the time. So, Switzerland's not just one country, but it's an area in Europe made up of individual, independent, what they would call cantons, which are like cities, pretty much. So, each little city had their own independent um, authority structure. Um, They'd kind of broken away from the Holy Roman Empire. This is the time of history where... The Roman Catholic Church tries to lead the Holy Roman Empire, of which was not a holy group, nor even in Rome, nor was it even an empire, but it was called the Holy Roman Empire. Um, But the lands of Switzerland had independent states that led, that had their own authority. So that's places like Zurich or Geneva, which we're going to get into. Um, They were separate from the Holy Roman Empire, and they actually had authority to determine what faith or as the Protestant movement um, extends into Europe, who they were going to follow, okay? So they had the independent authority of their own, yet they kind of made up a confederacy of different cities, okay? So they could unite together to protect themselves. So what do you think of when you think of Switzerland? There's a couple things I think of, just off, off, off the top here. Fine chocolate, I don't know. Swiss Miss, by the way, for hot chocolate. So that must be important. Cheese, right? Swiss cheese. Uh, I'm getting to Swiss Army Knives. I have that on my list. Rodney, I, I did ask the question, but it was for me. Um, and those, those of you that are into finance, um, Swiss banking, right? Isn't that a big deal? Is that where you, it's like, kind of like offshore? 
I don't know, money accounts. There's the Alps. We love that. Um, we also know them as being neutral, right? So if you're Switzerland, that means you're not picking a side, right? I think in the World Wars, they were both neutral to both sides in World War I and World War II. Um, so those are kind of things we think of when we think about um, Switzerland. But did you know back then what Switzerland was famous for and popular for was the supply of mercenaries that they gave or sold off to rival lands. Um, so there was a great mercen exportation of Swiss um, citizens who were mercenaries in fighting wars for other princes and kings in the area. From the 1200s to about the 1700s, um, that was their main um, exportation device was these mercenaries. They served, served as arms and militias, even for the Pope and for the church. And even today, the guards at the Vatican are the Swiss guard in the tradition of, uh, of this um, aspect of Swiss, Swiss life. In the 1500s, over 200,000 Swiss mercenaries were killed in battles. Um, there's a lot of towards the end of the 1500s and early 1600s, a lot of religious wars that go on. So 200,000 Swiss mercenaries were killed, and it's estimated that between the 1200s and 1700s, over one million people from the land of Switzerland, the area of Switzerland, were killed in battles as mercenaries. Interesting. Maybe you didn't know that. Um, that's something you can take away today. It's something new and learned about Switzerland. So it's in this culture of independent city-states that the Re Reformation um, comes to play. So the first guy we're going to talk about today is a man by the name of Ulrich Zwingli, who lived from 1484 to 1531. He was born two months after Martin Luther, so he's the complete contemporary of Luther, almost his exact age. And as you think, as we talk about his life, a lot of it is similar to Luther. Um, his father worked hard. Um, they actually were sheep farmers on the Alps. Imagine that. I mean, if you're going to you're going to farm sheep, you should do it on the Alps. Um, I would think it would be beautiful. Um, so they were sheep farmers, and his father worked hard, and he was part of this growing middle class that we've talked about the last two weeks, and he arose to the position of sheriff in their hometown of Glarus. Um, and it was because of his father's hard work and success that his father desired for young Ulrich to get a greater education. Sounds like Luther, right? Um, these guys, they saw the rising middle class and said, hey, I don't want my son to have to live this life of peasanthood like I did, so I want to pay for this great education for him. And it was at this time um, that Zwingli, um, you know, very, the Swiss people in, this time, in these areas were very patriotic, and it was during this time that Zwingli developed a great love for his homeland. In 1506, he became a priest um, after going to school, um, in between 1506 and 1516, he served as a chaplain for the Swiss mercenaries. So these guys would go off to battle, and they'd send their priest with them, and Zwingli was one of these guys. So he was a little uh, probably disappointed in that, seeing that what was happening to his homeland and the people that are citizens of that area. Um, he witnessed over 10,000 in the battles that he was involved in, 10,000 Swiss being killed. Um, so he, saw, he began to speak against the idea of the Swiss people sending out their folks as mercenaries. He began to study the works of Erasmus, um, the noted humanist, um, and he had a great love for studying and 
uh, reviewing the classic works of the early church fathers and also the ancient Greeks. Um, but he found himself, as he became a priest, after serving as a um, chaplain to the mercenaries, he was a priest in his hometown of Glarus. But eventually he had to leave because he started speaking out against this mercenary trade. However, in the city of Glarus and most of the other cities, this mercenary trade was important to them. It was important to the townspeople because people were making money off of it. So you can see when you start preaching against somebody, they want you out of town. It kind of starts rubbing people the wrong way. So he leaves. He moves to a neighboring town, serves as a priest again. He's identified for his intellectualism and his patriotism, continues to be more acquainted with Erasmus, and he even begins a friendly correspondence with Erasmus. And um, at this point, he starts reading Erasmus's. This is about the time of Erasmus's Greek New Testament. And he begins to read that and study it closely. And then, this sounds another thing, sounds similar to Luther, he starts preaching against some of the corruption and issues he has with the church of the day, including indulgences. So the cell of indulgences, again, rises its ugly head for the church, and Zwingli is opposed to that. Um, and so it sounds very much like Luther. You would almost think that he had been reading or following Luther very closely. Maybe they were Facebook friends, I don't know. But, <laughs> but between, in 1516 to 1518, as he's preaching against indulgences, he really comes to know Christ genuinely. Um, Zwingli discovered the real thing, the gospel. It was like a snowball rolling downhill. This discovery led to more and more and more. This historian says, stripped of all the layers of traditions, Wingley could at last look into the pages of the Bible and see the glorious gospel of grace. He took that gospel into the pulpit, displaying it for a congregation of sinners in need. So he saw the reality of the gospel in the scriptures as he's reading um, the Greek New Testament, and he's radically changed, much like Luther. So these guys are getting saved because of their study and the... Um, Holy Spirit's work as they're studying the scriptures. An amazing, amazing revelation. He said that his work and what he was doing at this time was not the result of Luther's influence. Remember, Luther's Reformation begins 1517. So he's, his experiences and his salvation experience happens around that time. We don't have a definite date for that. Um, that happens in 1517. Remember, like I said last week, Luther, he nails his 95 theses to the door of the church at Wittenberg, and then it proliferates throughout all of Europe. Um, however, Zwingli was already down this path prior to Luther. He said, in fact, I began to preach the gospel before anyone in my locality had, locality had even heard of Luther, for I never left the pulpit without taking the words of the gospel and expounding by means of Scripture. Amazing to see God's hand both independently working in both of these men's life through the word of God and through the gospel. With his renewed gospel preaching, he was a threat to the church. So what did the church do when he was a threat? They didn't kick him out. They offered him lucrative positions in the church so he would not have that um, influence on the common people. They offered him uh, different roles. He didn't take those roles. And in 1519... The, the uh, leaders of the city of Zurich appointed him the priest of the Gross Munster. It's the great Minster church in Zurich. And what did he do? He started preaching through the Bible verse by verse. He was an expository preacher. 
And he starts in the New Testament and starts in the book of Matthew. It's a good place to start. He preached through Acts, 1 Timothy, Galatians, 1 and 2 Peter, Hebrews, and then returned to the Gospels and preached through Luke and John as his time as the priest there. Coinciding with the time that he became the priest in Zurich, there was also a great plague that occurred. And a lot of the people that were better well off left the town. Um, However, um, Zwingli thought it was his role to be involved in the people's lives and to suffer with them. And he actually stayed there. There were 7,000 people approximately that lived in Zurich at this time. About a quarter of them died from this plague. Um, However, Zurich showed a great example of servant leadership in staying with the people. He said um, in his prayer, Do what thou will, thy vessel am I to make or break altogether. So he's making great influence now in Zurich, a more populous area. So now the Roman Catholic Church comes calling again and offers him the position of cardinal. Um, He doesn't take that either. Um, But it's interesting that in order to dissuade the influence of the Reformation, they offered them positions within the church. Um, Maybe he could have reformed the church that way. Um, A couple things that happened that were very important in the 1520s that kind of led to the city of Zurich breaking away from the Roman Catholic Church. Number one in 1522 was, this is, you're all going to giggle, was the affair of sausages. And somehow, that's the impetus for the break with the Catholic Church, but I'll explain to what this was. So there's this tradesman who decided to feed his employees a meal during the Lenten season, and he feeds them versed, or worst, bratwurst sausage um, during the Lenten season, and at that time, they were forbidden to have meat besides fish. You guys are probably familiar with that uh, view in the Catholic Church today during the Lenten season. So this guy decides, I don't care. I'm going to feed my guys sausage. They've been working hard. They need to eat that. Um, Zwingli was actually present at the meal where this happened. He um, did not eat of the sausage, but he supported those that did. And the next Sunday, he preached a sermon which was called Of Choice and Freedom Regarding Foods. Um, And this was his um, explanation of Christian liberty, that there was freedom in Christ. And then he cited Acts 10 and 1 Corinthians 6, identifying that the Scripture does not state explicitly that you should abstain from this type of eating and fasting. And this actually became a pamphlet. Um, he called the tradition in this sense. So he's pretty, he's, he's now total onslaught to some of the traditions of the church at the time. He called these traditions blemishes on the face of Christ in the foulness of human commands. Um, he said Christ will, be, will become again dear to us if we properly feel the sweetness of his yoke and the lightness of his burden. Um, so at this point, he's kind of making his line in the sand that we're not going to follow these traditions and we're going to fall closer to what Scripture says. And it really wasn't up to the parishioners or the church, the Roman Catholic Church, as to where they're going to go, where are they going to follow. It was up to the local council that governed the area of Zurich. And the council agreed with him. Um, But they didn't make too big a deal out of it at first, wanting to keep the peace. Um, But then the next thing he did, they found even more um, support for him. 
and that's that they propose, Zwingli and his followers propose the idea of priestly marriage, which again, rejecting the idea of celibacy for the priesthood. So he, after they espoused this to the council, he and 11 priests decided to not wait for their approval. They went ahead and got married. So you have um, food and marriage impacting the Reformation in Zurich. Then in 1523, um, the council actually holds a debate. It's called the First Disputation between the Catholic Church and um, Zwingli and Zwingli's followers. Okay, so when we talked about Luther being presented before councils last week, remember every time it was going to be a debate, he got there and it's pretty much, you need to recant or we're going to convict you of heresy and you're going to die. This actually was a legitimate debate. Um, This was in 1523. Um, The Catholic leaders didn't send their most gifted of students. Um, However, Zwingli was rather gifted, so they won the debate. In in presenting his debate, he actually came up with, like Luther, 67 theses, 18 fewer, or 28 fewer than Luther. Um, But they were also 67 articles. In that, he described 12 truths of what he's describing as a Reformation faith and 55 protests against the Roman Catholic Church. As I said, Rome sent an inferior debater. And the church, there's... There's more to it than just the fact that he presents his case here. There's a political aspect of all this, too. There's, there's a lot of detail when you start digging into this kind of stuff. But the church wasn't popular with the council at the time, partly because of this mercenary trade and partly because the church hadn't paid for some of their mercenaries. So there's an economic impact to the, to the, uh, um, kind of the, the association between the church and the council, which is interesting to think about. Um, his famous quote during this first disputation was, custom should yield to truth. So the truth of the Bible is what informs the traditions of the church, he would say. Um, and the, the authority of the scriptures is preeminent. Um, then he has a second disputation in front of the council as well, and he wants to address three specific issues. Um, images, the idea of the mass and purgatory, he got initial agreement from the council to remove images. So it's like statues, stained glass, things like that, out of the church. Um, they would not submit to his view of the mass. The council would not, and Zwingli was okay with that, knowing that at this point it's not time to push everything forward. We can reform in a slow, um, slow steps. Um, but some of Zwingli's followers were really upset with him at this point because they felt like he wasn't going far enough. And this group of guys was named the Swiss Brethren. And they break away from Zwingli at this time. And these are the guys that become the radical reformers. They become the Anabaptists. Two guys by the name of Conrad Grable and Felix Mons are really what we call the first Anabaptists. And so not only do they break away from Zwingli, they then propose this other idea. Is not only do we want these things that you put before the council to be changed, but we also want um, to... Re- look at the idea of infant baptism. And these guys say, hey, no, we don't see infant baptism in Scripture. That's what they're arguing. And we believe in rebaptism or anabaptism or true baptism. So these guys break away from them, and we'll talk about them a little bit next week. Um, two other things that are important in the life of um, Zwingli. So at this point, they have broken away from the church, the Roman Catholic Church. Um, however, they aren't as going, going as far as some people would like. 
And Luther probably didn't go as far as these Swiss brethren would have liked either in his breaking away. Um, but the next thing they did there was in um, the early 1530s was the Marburg Colloquy, where a group of reformers kind of got together to agree on certain doctrines of the Reformation. So I think it was 1529, actually. Um, they agreed on 14 of 15 articles of the faith. The one thing that Luther especially would not subscribe to with these in this colloquy was the idea, the nature of communion. Um, Luther himself held to what's called consubstantiation, um, a little bit different than transubstantiation, which the Roman Catholic Church believes in. But um, Zwingli himself held to more of a memorial or remembrance view of the Lord's Supper. And Luther said that of Zwingli's view, which kind of hurt Zwingli's feeling, that it was a secular emptying of the Lord's Supper, a mere rationalization. So there's definitely more spiritual aspect in the Lord's Supper, view of the Lord's Supper that Luther has. Last thing noted in his life for Zwingli is in 1531, ironically, he dies as a soldier fighting between the Protestant Swiss cantons and the Catholic ones. So there's kind of the Swiss Confederacy starts breaking up, and he decides to lead a group of troops to battle. So he's kind of started preaching against this mercenary trade, and then he dies in battle at the what's called the Second Battle of Kappel, or Capel, um, when the Protestant Swiss cantons go to war with the Catholic cantons. He was decapitated, his body was quartered and burned, and this was a disastrous result for Zwingli's influence. So it's kind of like he did all this great work, and then he becomes more of a doing some things in the civil and the secular world versus the, um, the church world. A couple things about Zwingli's theology, though, that are important to read, and I have got to hurry up. Um, he believed in the sovereignty of God over all things, including salvation. I've got a bunch of quotes in a book, but we're not going to get to them. I'm sorry. Um, he said about election, it's the free disposition of God's will concerning those who are to be saved. So let's be clear here. Zwingli is um, a Calvinist, okay? Calvinist, Calvin's not alive yet, but he's a Calvinist. Um, uh, so he believes greatly in the doctrines of grace. Zwingli's influence is the beginning of the Reformed faith, Okay? And then comes Calvin to take it to another level. He believes in radical depravity, that all of man is totally depraved. Believes in sola scriptura. Um, agreed with Luther, as this is the primary source for authority. Scripture over tradition. Scripture is preeminent. Emphasis on preaching. Preaching was emphasized in his life and what he did. He also, another element of the Reformed faith that he begins is church worship only includes what is specifically mentioned in Scripture. So, we have an organ and we have a piano, or we have, what do we have? A keyboard. We used to have an organ, right? Um, they didn't have an organ in their church because the Scriptures don't talk about there being organs in church. So, they only do in worship what is specifically prescribed in, the, in, uh, in Scripture. That is something that Zwingli and his followers did. A couple, things, a couple of his works, um, the clarity and certainty of God's word. He said the Bible is powerful, certain, and clear. Um, and in that, it does not need the papal interpretation. Um, so the Bible is powerful, certain, and clear. So it's the perpiscuity of Scripture. He wrote the commentary on true and false religion. 
in doing that, he denounced much of the Catholic system of the day. He rejected the idea of the mass, especially transubstantiation. He rejected five of the seven sacraments. So that means he left two, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Um, he rejected purgatory and, and much Lutheran-type um, um, extremism. He called the Pope the Antichrist. On providence, it was another work he did. He said God is the ultimate cause of every action in nature and history. Stated God is not morally responsible for acts of sin committed by man, but man is responsible, and God is not the direct author of sin. This is part of the mystery of divine providence. And it's his, the beginnings of this faith that he passed down to Calvin and other people in this area. And the generations of Protestant leaders owe their a great debt to what Zwingli did at this time. Um, so Zwingli and Luther are kind of like, they're the guys on the front line. And then Calvin is the next generation. That's what we're going to talk about now. So he kind of takes, you've got Luther and Zwingli and what they've done already, kind of introducing these Reformation ideas. And here, here comes Calvin on the scene to kind of give all the foundation to it. He's the great theologian of the Reformation, the greatest theologian since the Apostle Paul. Um, so here we go. We've got Calvin. We have 15 minutes. All right, so Calvin was born in 1509. So John Calvin, his name is Jean Covin. He's actually French. He's born in France. His father actually worked for a Catholic bishop, which afforded him great educational opportunities. He was trained in the new humanism and the previous scholasticism of the day. He was gifted in the study of languages, especially Latin and Greek. And actually in 1532, so at the age of, what, 23, 22, he completed his first book, which was one that none of us would want to read probably, but to show his skill with languages, he referenced 74 different Latin authors and 22 different Greek authors. Now, his book wasn't a success, but he did write it. It might not be a success because Erasmus had recently written a book on a similar topic, um, and he definitely had a greater following at that time. Um, his studies pointed him in the direction of law. His dad wanted him to be a lawyer. Um, that sounds kind of like... Mr. Luther, we talked about earlier. Um, but after his father's death, he decided, I can reject the law now because I won't disappoint my father, and he dedicated himself to a life of the studies of the classics. So he went to the University of Paris, and even in his Catholic education, he would have been introduced to the works of Luther because at this time, the Catholic universities were wanting to train people in what Luther was thinking so they could refute him. Um, so he was introduced to what Luther had to say in his works so they could, he could learn the right way to correct Lutheran-type theology. Between 1529 and 1532, um, we believe he was converted to genuine faith. Um, he wasn't prone to write much about himself. Um, he was writing deep theological treatises um, that, that were to edify others, not much to talk about himself. But this is what he says in his commentary on the Psalms. He says, God by a sudden conversion, subdued and brought my mind to a teachable frame. Having thus received some taste and knowledge of true godliness, I was immediately inflamed with an intense desire to make progress. So reading the scriptures, reading the Psalms, he is saved. Um, and that's how he described his salvation experience. So at that time, now with this intermixing of a little bit of Lutheran theology and his education, 
he becomes sympathetic to some of the ideals of the Reformation. So he and a good friend of his by the name of Nicholas Kopp in 1533 on All Saints Day, another famous day again, um, give, Kopp actually is the one that does this, gives a Reformation-type sermon um, at the university, and these guys are effectively run out of town because of it. Um, it's thought that Calvin coordinated with Kopp in writing this sermon, and they needed to leave immediately or they would have been deemed as heretics. And in France at that time, so France is a Catholic, staunchly Catholic um, country. Um, not much influence yet from Luther or um, the Swiss reformers or from Zwingli. Um, so he began to be influenced by, by Luther. They left. He and his friend Kopp leave. Um, Protestant persecution was on the rise. So he's on the run for the next two years. And what does he do on his run while he's on the run? He writes the first edition of the Institutes of the Christian Religion, which is the ultimate systematic theology of the Reformation. So he writes that while he's on the run for two years. Um, he called it the elementary textbook of the Christian faith and a defense of Protestantism. He dedicated it to the French king, Francis I. He wanted to identify that Protestants were just going for pure doctrine, not trying to overthrow the secular government. So he's on, the, he's on the run, and he decides he needs to end up somewhere else, so he's going to go to Strasbourg, Germany. He go, he's on his way to Strasbourg. He's going to go to Strasbourg, but there's like a battle in the way, so he's got to take a circular route around Strasbourg, and he's going to spend one night in Geneva, and this one night turns into three years. Um, he gets to Geneva. There's a guy there in Geneva. That Geneva is in Switzerland, so an independent Swiss canton, like we talked about, was Wingley. Um, so there's they have the authority to decide, are we going to follow the Roman Catholic Church, or are we submitting to some other kind of reformed or reformation-type um, church? And they had already separated from the Roman Catholic Church. And the leader at the time was a man by William Farrell. He asked him to stay, but, but Calvin's like, I don't really want to stay. My goal in life isn't to be you know, actively in ministry. I just want to sit and retire and write and study. That was what his life was going to be in his view well, Farrell, seeing the folly in that, um, pronounced a curse on him and said that your retirement will be cursed if that's what you choose to do. You need to get busy about working in the church. Um, so he stays, fearing that Farrell might be right in his retirement or his life of writing and ease would be cursed. So Farrell and Calvin ramp up the Reformation in Geneva from 1536 to 1538. It was already a Reformation city, and these guys both, though, were expository preachers. A couple things they did that kind of raised the ire of the church at the time, or the city council at the time. They had their church members sign a confession of faith, understanding that they had been saved and they adhered to the doctrines of the church. Um, and not only did they sign it, they also had to adhere to it. Um, Calvin administered church discipline at the communion table. So if someone was in known sin, they were not going to receive the communion. And that involved some of the city's leaders. Um, so Calvin was kicked out in 1538 by the city leaders. And where does he go? He ends up in Strasbourg. Finally, after three years, he gets there. Um, and he gets to uh, Strasbourg and studies under the reformer by the name of Martin Bucer. And interesting here, too, and this is amazing to think about. So there's this great... 
uh, persecution going on in France at the time. So these French Protestants are leaving in droves from France, fearing for their lives. And Calvin takes up the pastorate of a church of about 500 French refugees in Strasbourg. Um, and that, that changed and impacted his life forever. And I'm, during the service, I decided to change my notes up completely for the very end here. And this kind of dovetails into that. But it stirred his heart for his homeland, for the people of France who were being persecuted um, at the time. And those especially that had converted to Protestantism. And it was at this time he wrote his commentary on the book of Romans. And he found the time to write the second of his second edition to the Institutes. And he got married. So he's now a married uh, pastor. He returns again to Geneva in 1541 at the request of the leaders after they had received a letter from the local cardinal requesting that they come back. Um, he didn't want to do that at first, but he saw the need to do it. Um, and at this time, he actually pens a famous response to this cardinal that was trying to lead the uh, city of Geneva back to the Roman Catholic Church. His name is Cardinal Sadaleto. And uh, that's one of Calvin's major, major treatises, is his response to the, to the cardinal. He gives a great defense for the glory of God and the gospel of grace there. And he lived a life of a busy pastor. For the next 20 years, he, he preached five times a week. And at one point, some of the members of the church, some of the people there, some of his students began to transcribe his sermons. So we have about 2,000 of Calvin's sermons um, in French. When he initially arrived in Geneva, this is really cool. He's an expository preacher, right? So he stopped preaching in Geneva at a certain location. I didn't research where he was. But when he comes back three years later, he picks up exactly where he was for the church. Um, so the importance of the sufficiency of God's word in his life. Uh, the first 15 years of his return were, pretty, uh, uh, were filled pretty much with difficulty. He had a son who was two weeks old pass away. Um, but he found great comfort in the sovereignty of God in that. Um, there was a group of people called the Libertines who were antinomian, were against the belief that they didn't need to have the law um, in the city, who persisted in taking the Lord's table, even though they were not right with God. They were sin in their lives, and that was a difficulty in his life. Uh, there's a major controversy, which many of you guys are familiar with, with a gentleman that was that the uh, town council had declared a heretic by the name of Michael Servetus, and um, much criticism of Calvin's life um, by historians is a result of this affair, and that happened during that time. That took great toll on his life. But his last years were much more fruitful or productive and less strenuous. He, less strenuous. He established a school. Um, in 1559, he wrote his final version of the Institutes. Um, 1516, 1560 saw the production of the Geneva Bible, which was a Bible in English. Um, it's the Bible that came with the pilgrims on the Mayflower. Um, and also, he trained many pastors, which I'll get to here in a second. And as he dies in 1564, his successor, Theodore de Beza, says, Now that Calvin is dead, life will be less sweet and death less bitter. Um, Calvin's legacy, a couple things, and I do not have time to get into theology. We'll touch on some of that next week. Um, Calvin's legacy, his writings, the collected Reformation writings, which is called the Corpus Reformatorum, Latin, 
His works make up 59 of the 101 volumes. He's a prolific writer. There's about 71 encyclopedia-type volumes of his works. He wrote these in 28 years. So just put this in context. Of the 28 years that he was a writer, he wrote about 1,000 pages per year. And he was preaching five times a week. When did he sleep? Well, he died at 54, probably because some of the ailments brought on for the lack of care he had for his body. I mean, this guy was persistent in his effort and his work to see the gospel and the scriptures preached and proclaimed. Um, his legacy can be seen in the Institutes, which is a clear statement of Reformation doctrine. His pro- he wanted to say that Protestantism was biblical. The first edition was a Uh, 111 pages in 1536 in 85,000 words. The last edition, he did five editions, by the way. His last edition was 450,000 words. Um, The Institutes house over 7,000 quotations or references from Scripture. Uh, A Presbyterian seminary professor says this about Calvin. He was a wholesale plagiarist. From Moses and David, Isaiah and Ezekiel, Jesus and John, Peter and Paul knew God's word and used it in his writings. It was his authority. Um, The institutes are often considered an ironclad attempt to captivate the mind of the believer. But B.B. Warfield, the great Princeton theologian of the 1800s, comments that it is the heart which he primarily addresses in his theology. Um, Calvin said he was said that as as we study theology, something in us should worship, as he did in his chapter about the Trinity. It is a doctrine which we ought more to adore than to meticulously search out. So it's not just about us, our minds being changed, but should propel us to worship. Our hearts should be changed as we study scripture. So you think about that, and you think about the perception of quote-unquote Calvinists, you know, and the in, in may the bad rap Calvinists get. It's not all about the, the, the head, it's also about the heart. Um, he wrote commentaries on most books, 24 books of the Bible, 24 of the 39 Old Testament books, and all but two of the New Testament. Um, he probably preached 4,000 sermons, and he was an expository preaching. Okay, and I thought maybe we could compare this to some of Dan's preaching real quick. In Genesis, he preached 123 messages. Deuteronomy, 200 Okay, so the harmony of the Gospels, he didn't preach through, he, he went through all the Gospels at one time. He only preached 65 messages. So I think Dan's near, nearing that in just in John. Um, but in 1 Corinthians, he was at 110, Ephesians 48, and Galatians 43. He wrote many letters and treatises. We have about 4,000 of those published. 1537, he wrote a short catechism for training the people. Um, He wrote a book called The Ecclesiastical Ordinances of the Church, which established three marks of the church. That's the ministry of the word, the administration of the sacraments, which is baptism and the Lord's Supper and church discipline. Now, our church would disagree with Calvin because he still believed in infant baptism. All these magisterial reformers still believe in infant baptism. Um, And his goal was to return the church to apostolic simplicity. And his, his, uh, he was the guide for the 16th century Reformed churches. But there's one aspect. So we think about Calvin. We think about Calvinism. So there's the tulip, right? The five points of Calvinism. Calvin probably, he definitely would say that he believes in each of those things. Calvin himself did not espouse these five points of Calvinism. That is a later doctrine that comes, those 
systemized later, okay? Um, they actually are a response to a group, to the Arminians, to the followers of Jacob Arminius, who were, his followers were called the uh, Remonstrants, and they had presented kind of like five key doctrines that they view, and then the next generation of Calvin's um, um, followers came up with five counterpoints, which are the five doctrines of, Calvin, of Calvinism, which were uh, espoused at the Synod of Dort in the early 1600s. Um, so that's where the five points of Calvinism come in. So we think about that so much, and we think about, we get stumped on election, and we get stumped on God's sovereignty over salvation. We love that, and we, we love those things here. But there's, as a whole, evangelical culture doesn't agree with that in America today, right? The, the, the bigger, broader evangelical church does not. And what they always paint is the fact that people that hold to the doctrines of grace, and I'm going to say it, Calvinism, um, do not evangelize and do not reach out to others and proclaim the gospel. And we need to look, I have got two minutes, real quickly about the life of Calvin in regards to that. Um, and I think that's fitting, especially today, as we send out Living Hope Bible Church, is that there's a legacy of church planting that exists from the New Testament as the apostles follow Jesus' command um, to go forth and make disciples into where? Into, all, into Jerusalem, into Samaria, and into all the ends of the earth. Um, the reality is Calvin did the exact same thing. So we talked about those 500 that 500-member church in Strasbourg that he was ministering to of French refugees. Well, he goes back to Geneva, and Geneva becomes, in one term, the city of refuge. It becomes the place that people can come that are potentially suffering from persecution because of their Protestant faith. And Calvin, especially the French, come in droves. And not only does Calvin... Um, see the need to minister to them and preach the gospel to them, he trains up young men. And what does he do? He sends them back to France. He sends them back to France, and a lot of them die, and they suffer. It's the school of death. But he plants churches. Some raw numbers about the church planting that went on in France at the time. In 1560, so Calvin dies in 1564, there were approximately 100 underground churches in France, um, by 1562, there were 2,150. So these men are being trained, and they're being trained not to just sit there and be part of the frozen chosen, but to go back and preach the reality of the gospel. So let's not give Calvin a bad rap um, as he trains these men. He's not the only one doing this, but he's important in it. So 2,150 churches, and in France that represented 3 million people that were, became believers in France at that time, or members of the church. They trained missionaries and planted churches in Italy, Hungary, Poland, Germany, the Netherlands, England, Scotland, Brazil. Really? <laughs> um, and it was in, so when we think about the English Reformation, um, so at one point in the English Reformation, Queen Mary comes on the throne. She's Bloody Mary. She's going to kill all the Protestants. And these guys flee, and they flee to Geneva. Some of these people do. And that's when the Bible's trans... One of the Tyndale's Bible is taken, and the Geneva Bible is created. Um, and the Geneva Bible is an amazing work. You guys that were here, I think we had a copy of the Geneva Bible when the Truth Remains came. Um, but it, it not only had, it had the Scriptures, but also had Reformed 
study notes, and that's what made it so uh, hated by Queen Mary especially. But it was these guys fleeing persecution in England that set up shop in Geneva, and think about the influence there. And then you think about the fact that it was the Geneva Bible and the Puritans and the pilgrims that came over to the New World. Think about the impact that's had on American society as a whole. Um, so um, my main point is to say that Calvin is a church planter. And he, that is, he's faithfully doing what the apostles did. And we can see that consecutively throughout history. And then we're doing that today too. That's amazing. Um, that, none of that's in my notes except for the stats. But I was just so struck by that today as we glory in God's grace, as we plant a church, to see the line of faithfulness throughout church history. And praise the Lord that he's rising up churches and men that are willing to go, and families as well. So that's all I have. Um, I do, actually, I have more. <laughs> so maybe next week we'll, I have one more week, so we'll, we'll see what that holds for next week, okay? Um, let's pray, and I think there's a couple announcements that Dan makes at the end of the service that'll be sufficient for the announcements for today. Lord, we love you and we praise you, Lord. Um, Lord, it is amazing to see how you build your church. Um, Lord, how you use men as leaders, oh Lord, but you are faithfully drawing people to yourself through the faithful proclamation of your word. Oh Lord, we pray for um, true churches to rise up. Lord, we pray that we would continue to see more churches established that preach um, the reality of the gospel. Lord, thank you for the scriptures. Thank you in them that we have light and that we can be, um, we can understand the commands that you have for us. We can understand our situation, our sinfulness, and we can understand the great need, the great remedy you've provided for the need that we have through Jesus. So we praise you for that, Lord. In Christ's name we pray, amen.